0: Good morning. My name is Nate Grosima. If you don't know me, I'm an elder here at the church. Glad you're with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, I will will encourage you to open to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is in the New Testament toward the end of the Bible. See Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It's tucked right in there. Um, We are going to be getting to Ephesians chapter 2 in just a few moments, Uh, so keep your Bible open, and I'll encourage you to keep it open uh, through the whole sermon because we're going to be jumping in and out of the text. Today we're continuing our mini-series called Big Questions, and the big question that I had assigned to me is this, how do we get out of this mess? It's a broad question. It's a question that we ask and hear regularly in all sorts of different spheres, don't we? Uh, hate to remind you, but it's a, uh election year. <laughs> and so, you're going to hear at length all year long about how our world and how our country and how our systems and how our society is such a mess, and how politicians have all the answers to solve that mess. We hear activists talking about the problem of climate change and the mess that our climate is, and the ways that we can solve that. We have school boards that exist because they believe education is an answer to solve the problem of the mess we see in our world. There are PR firms that exist solely to clean up messes, messes are all around. Before we can answer the question this morning, how do we get out of this mess, we actually have to ask a different question. What is the mess we are addressing? What is it? Is it a mess that needs a school board? Is it a mess that needs a politician? Is it a mess that needs a PR firm? Well, the Bible talks about a problem an issue that's more significant than any other issue or problem that you can think of. In fact, it's so significant that it is actually the origin of every other issue and problem you can possibly think up. So every mess that we've ever encountered, whether it's a big problem or a small one, can trace its beginning, its origin, to this central problem, this central issue. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you don't actually have to read the Bible very long to find out what that issue is. You open uh, to Genesis 1, the first book of the Bible, and you start reading. And what you hear is the creation story, God bringing life out of nothing. Then you read just a little bit farther, you get to chapter 2. And we hear that if Uh, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the world, eat a, a fruit from a forbidden tree, they will die. And so, immediately you hear a contrast between the life that's being created and death that can come into the world through this disobedience. And that's exactly what happens. Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat it in Genesis 3, And no longer do we hear the refrain that we hear in Genesis 1, that God saw what He made and it was good. Instead, what we hear is a curse, a curse upon the serpent. And then, chapter 3, God announces pain and toil and conflict and frustration and hardship and ultimately death. God announces that as what mankind will have to endure now due to their disobedience. So everything, everything from work to relationships to parenting are going to be difficult and messy. Everything. So all those messes, they can trace their origin back to this disobedience. And that's exactly what transpires next. (laughs) You read Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, you see that there's conflict between Cain and Abel. And you see that there's death in the descendants that come after them. And then you see Noah, and all you hear about is corruption. It describes the narrative all throughout the rest of the Bible, these experiences, pain and hardship and toil. Now, if we're honest, we know that these sort of things describe our own human experience too, don't they? Pain, hardship, toil, frustration, death. In this room, our collective experiences include divorce, depression, diseases, death of loved ones, And so we're left to ask the question where does this all come from? Can we trace the origins of this human experience that we all know and feel the pain of to one point, to one point in time? And the answer is yes, we can. We can trace it back to what we call in biblical categories the fall. The fall. All of humanity's troubles. All of the world's messes, both big and small, came into existence when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they sinned, as the Bible calls it. And that right there is the central problem in the world, in the universe, in our existence, sin. So, going back to the big question how do we get out of this mess? If sin is the central issue, how do we solve this problem? And I'm going to make it more personal. How will you solve the problem of sin in your life? Can you do it? Well, there's really just two ways to answer that question. You answer that question with God, or you answer that question without God. Here's how the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield put it. He said, there are fundamentally only two doctrines of salvation, that salvation is from God or that salvation is from ourselves. So what we're going to do this morning is evaluate these two doctrines, and we're going to do so uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. And so, if you have your Bible open, uh, turn with me and read with me verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3. We're going to begin with the doctrine or perspective that salvation is from ourselves. And here's what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 say. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, of the fall upon mankind, the universal human condition of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. You might say, "Oh, that doesn't really describe me. I grew up in a law-abiding home. I've never been arrested. I've never been pulled over for that matter. I go to church. I've treated my neighbors well. Most people, if you were to ask them, think I'm a good person. They actually think I'm nice. But we see what verse 3 says. Among whom we all once lived. We all. Dane Ortland uh, puts it this way, and I like how he puts it. He said, we can be immoral dead people, or we can be moral dead people. Either way, we're dead. So, to put a point on this, verses 1 through 3 either describe you and your condition at this very moment, or before you were saved, before a change was brought about in your life. And so, consider with me three realities of the human condition as a result of the fall. And I think what you're going to see at least this is what I'm hoping you're going to see, is that uh, it, these verses present a very pessimistic outlook on one saving himself. A very pessimistic outlook. Here's the first reality. The first reality is found in verse 1. Sinners are dead in their sin. Not sick, not paralyzed, not terminally ill, but dead. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that biologically we're dead, of course, uh, though that is a consequence of the fall, death. Rather, it's spiritual deadness. What it means is that fallen man is dead to the things of God. He has no desire for them. Rather, as verses 2 and 3 say, he walks about in sin, following the ways of the world and devil, and gratifies his human Uh, his sinful nature. So, spiritually dead. Secondly, enslaved to sin. That's the second result of the fall on the condition of mankind. We're controlled and directed by very powerful forces. And Paul calls them, uh, names them, the world, the devil, and the flesh. That's what he names them in verses 2 and 3. The world and the devil are against God. And they are working in and among mankind to set mankind against God as well. Remember how the devil did that with Adam and Eve. He tried to set them against God, and he succeeded. And so, R.C. Sproul says this, Sadly, nothing is more natural to fallen man than to adopt, to embrace, to walk according to the ways of this world in direct contrast to the way of God. That's the result. But it's not just the world and the devil that are against us, working in us. It's our own flesh. This doesn't mean skin, like my skin is working against me. Flesh here refers to my fallen sinful nature, the flesh Uh, which comprises both my body and my mind. It's at work against me. It's constantly urging me to gratify my sinful desires, lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, but even my sort of inward sins, right? It's constantly urging me to have pride in myself, to envy someone else, and what they have that I don't have. It even is working against me and working against God's truth to make me hostile to God's revealed truth. And what Ephesians 2 says is that fallen man is actually trapped by these things. We're so stuck that we're we're trapped by them. We're enslaved to them. Well, if that doesn't uh, confront your sensitivities… Uh, The next one will. Verse 3 says that fallen people are objects of God's wrath. Now, I recognize and realize there's no teaching in the Bible that's maybe more off-putting than this one. Especially in our day where one of the most important doctrines of the world is that truth is relative. What you say is true, what I say is true, what you say is true. And there's no one that is wrong, (laughs) Of course, if that is correct, then God could not be justified in His wrath, right? If truth is relative and and everyone is right, then God could not be justified in His wrath. But that sort of reasoning is actually just a further example of the sort of teaching Paul's saying here. We're We're enslaved. We're held captive to this false doctrine, this way of the world. There is big T truth. And If you doubt me, go back and listen to Pastor Dean's sermon a couple weeks ago. There is big T truth, and it has been revealed. So, the worldly mind that does not take sin seriously is not going to take God's wrath seriously either. But, sin is serious to God. It is serious, and therefore, it is reasonable to say, Uh, that the wrath of a holy God should come upon it. If sin is serious, it is reasonable that the wrath of a holy God should come upon it. Sometimes, uh, maybe you've heard this before, sometimes people will say, I don't feel the need for Jesus. I don't feel the need. And you might wonder, what is it that they're saying? What does someone mean when they say that I don't feel the need for Jesus? Well, Uh, one person says that it's like this. To say that is is like saying uh, that you don't have a need for a fireman when there's a fire. You see, who needs a Savior when there's no clear and present threat of judgment? If there is no judgment, then there is no need for a Savior. But if there is, in fact, a judgment then there is a need for our Savior. And, and our text doesn't just warn us of that judgment day. It says that we are so sinful that we are objects of wrath for that judgment day to come. Okay, here are three realities then of our human condition as a result of the fall in verses 1 through 3. We're spiritually dead, we're enslaved to sin, and we're by nature objects of wrath. And if we were just to try to summarize these three verses, uh, we could do so by saying that fallen man is incapable of saving himself. Totally incapable of saving himself. You're spiritually dead. We're attracted to sin. We, We can't turn from it. We don't want to turn from it. We don't want God. We have no desire for Him. And that ultimately leaves man under the judgment of god and so humanly speaking our condition is totally hopeless we are totally hopeless and some of you know exactly what i'm saying because you've been there you were hopeless <laughs> all of these things that i just said that ephesians 2 described you as you you said yeah that's exactly how I felt. That's exactly what my life was like. And some of you feel this right now. Your conscience is guilt-ridden, and there's no way to get rid of that guilt. For some of you, your life is a train wreck. <laughs> it's, it's an absolute mess, and you've, you've tried everything, but you just can't get out of it. You feel like, I need savings. And that's the exact solution you're in need of. Salvation, deliverance. Now we may not like to think that we don't need a we may like to think that we don't need a savior, but here's the truth and reality of Christianity. The primary assumption of Christianity, you need one. You are desperately in need of salvation. And that's exactly where verse 4 takes us. Whereas verses 1 through 3 just offer guilt-ridden, messed up, hurting people a lot of bad news, (laughs) that you can't do it on your own, it's hopeless. Verse 4 holds out hope with a very mighty adversative. Look there with me, the beginning of verse 4. But God, but God, what is impossible with man is possible with, with God. And so let's hear this message of good news, uh, verses 4 through 10, together. If you still have your Bible open, let's listen to it together. Here's what it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this right here, verses 4 through 10, is a message of good news. It is the gospel. And let's expound this message by asking and answering three questions of our text, of these verses. Here's the three questions. What has God done Why has God done it, and for whom has God done it? What has God done? Well, in a word, He saved us. Twice it is said, by grace you have been saved. Twice, to emphasize what God has done. In the Bible, when that word saved is used, it often refers to rescue or deliverance from death or from some sort of impending catastrophe. And that's exactly the idea here. And Paul spells out the details of this salvation with the use of three verbs in verses 5 and 6. God made us alive, He raised us up, and He seated us. We were dead in our sins, and dead men don't rise, but God made us alive. We were enslaved to the world, the devil and the flesh. We were in a position of subjection and powerlessness, but God raised us up and seated us with Christ. He enthroned us. We were objects of wrath, justly because of our sin. But God has chosen to shower us instead with mercy, grace, love, and kindness. And so states one commentator, thus God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. This is what God has done. Now, did you notice the preposition with each of those verbs? It's very important that we don't miss that. With Christ, with Christ, your salvation story depends on the work of Christ. Who is Christ? What did He do? Well, Jesus Christ is the one prophesied. Starting all the way back in Genesis 3, when God was announcing the curse on the serpent, announcing the pain that mankind would endure due to sin, God put a very important promise right there. There would be a deliverer. There would be a rescuer. He would come and he would save. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God the Son who became man so that he might save man. And he was given the name Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins, according to Matthew 1. That's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did did. He saved His people by living a sinless life, by dying an atoning death on the cross, by rising from the dead, by ascending to heaven, and by being seated at God's right hand. And as we're told in Ephesians 2, as Christ accomplished each of these steps of salvation, God was uniting us to Christ so that you would be saved with Him in Him. So, when Christ was raised from the dead, so too were you. And so, again, your salvation story depends on the work of Christ. And to put it differently, you cannot be saved apart from being united to Christ by faith. You cannot be saved apart from being united to Christ by faith. That's what God has done. Why has God done it? This is always a fun question, isn't it? Why? The why question. My daughter loves asking me the why question. Paul doesn't actually leave us wondering why God has done this. Why has He saved us? God could have left them as they were, but He doesn't. Why? Verse 4 But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, God, Is merciful in his being. That is who he is. And so when he shows his creatures mercy, he's acting in accordance with his nature. But the text says he is rich in mercy. Elon Musk might be the most wealthy man on our planet, but God, when it comes to the currency of mercy, is the wealthiest in all the universe. And here's what happens in verse 4. We have God's rich and mercy nature linked to God's love. Love is a great motivator, isn't it? it? It makes us and motivates us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. And God's love is an active love. According to John Owen, God loves life into us. It's active. He's active. And so, that you were made alive that you were united to Christ that you were saved is all because of God's love. Remember that famous verse John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And that is a truth that can change you. Maybe you've already been changed. It can take you to another degree of change. God gives out of his love. Not reluctantly, like I so often think. God doesn't give out of necessity as if He was required or compelled to do so. God gives simply out of His love, His great and abundant love. But there's more. And unfortunately, we don't really have time to uh, explore this amazing statement. But look at what verse 7 says. Why has God saved us? So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you want to know the point of eternal life, of unending life in the new heavens, the new earth, here it is. God wants to show you the immeasurable riches of His kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. And that means the best is yet to come. God saved you now, but He's. He's got salvation for all eternity for you to enjoy. Now we come to the last question. For whom has God done it? There are three just brief, short answers here. First, for the helpless. We've already touched on this, haven't we? But it's important to recognize that those whom God has saved are helpless on their own. There's a common saying that goes like this, and maybe you've heard it. Maybe you believe this, that God helps those who help themselves. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 says, you are dead. You are utterly helpless. You can't even help yourself. But verses 4 through 10 say that God saves those who are helpless. God saves those who are undeserving. There's Some overlap here between the helpless and the undeserving. If one is dead and helpless then there are no grounds for one to have deserved that salvation, right? In other words, the one who, has, who is saved has not earned it. But when I say that God saves the undeserving, I mean something just slightly different. I'm saying that the undeserving have actually earned the opposite of salvation. In other words, damnation. It's not that they haven't just earned salvation, they've actually earned the opposite of that. And that's clear from verses 1 to 3, as the undeserving are said to walk in the ways that deserve God's judgment. This point is further accentuated with that one word, that one very important word, grace. Grace. Grace by definition is something you cannot earn. It is by definition something you don't deserve. God owes no one salvation, but He freely saves the undeserving by grace, grace alone. Thirdly, God saves any who have faith. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The basis of our salvation is grace, But the means by which one enters into a saving relationship with Jesus is by faith. Faith says, I am desperately in need of saving. And the solution is in Jesus. What He has done in His life and death and resurrection, I will trust in Him alone for my salvation. Just like hands receive a gift at Christmas. So faith is the open hand which receives the gift of salvation given by God and accomplished in Christ. The very moment you believe, you are truly saved. It does not have to be a faith that's so mature yet. Just an ounce of faith will save you because of what Christ has done. So salvation, from beginning to end, is all of God. It's all of God. The Bible says several times, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's what Ephesians 2 emphasizes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. My friends, I've informed you of man's radical problem your sin, and your inability to save yourself. I've shared with you good news that God saves sinners by grace through faith. And so now I must ask you, have you observed how available this gospel is for you? Have you observed that, how available it is for you? if God saves sinners, then He can save you. He can save you. And I don't presume that any of you here are saved. And so, I must urge you to examine your own life. Are you saved? Have you been made alive? The Scripture says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And so I call you, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It matters not if you are young or old, if you have neglected to put your faith in Christ for a long time. Today is the acceptable day. Today is the day of salvation. See the remarkable grace of God provided for someone such as you, ask yourself, why should I not be saved? God saves sinners. If you've examined your life and you have faith, and you are resting upon Jesus for your salvation, what is there for you to do? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing just as those little lizards come out and bask in the sunshine in the afternoon. Be like them. Bask in this warmth, this glorious truth of salvation. Let it warm your heart with appreciation and enjoyment and gratitude once again. What a gift. What a gift. What a future that awaits you. My friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, though we were enslaved to sin, though we had no desire for you, though we were rightly and justly deserving Your wrath, that You had a great plan of salvation for us, that we would be Your objects of Your affection, Your love, Your mercy, Your grace, and that You have been so kind to not only give us Christ, but to give us faith. Faith to To call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to find salvation in Him. Lord, if this is the day of salvation for any here, I pray that Your Spirit would, would call in a clear way, would work in a powerful way, that we would call upon You and find salvation. Lord, thank You for this truth. We're thankful for its message and hope to us. And we give you thanks for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.